mighty anointing to be upon me and upon every ear that hears your word this morning. God, empower us and refresh us anew with the amazing dynamic of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. What are we going to do with a momentous, and I mean really momentous, passage like the one we just read? Here, here's this long-promised, long-awaited event an event that's been anticipated not just for years, but for centuries. And here in the scope of 12 verses, we see it come to pass. This had been promised very early, very clearly by Old Testament prophets. At least 600 years earlier by the prophet Ezekiel, and then with even greater emphasis and passion by the prophet Joel, and we'll talk about them here in a minute. But there were many who had alluded to this happening over all those long years in which God spoke to his people through men who were given the title of being prophets. And then Jesus came. Actually, John the Baptist came first, but when he came baptizing, he said, Hey, don't look at me. I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We saw that happening here in these 12 verses. And then Jesus did come, and he spoke of this very openly. If you go to John chapter number 7, you'll find in verses 37 and 38, Jesus stood up at one of the feasts in Jerusalem, and he spoke these words, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Wow. And then John goes on to say in verse number 39, he said, Jesus was saying this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And then we see the days drawing closer to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. And we see that Jesus, on several occasions that we've spoken about over the past couple of weeks, would gather his disciples together. And in fact, on the night before he was crucified, he gathered them together in the upper room and he told them repeatedly that he was going to send to them another helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who would be with them and not just with them, but in them. And then after his death and resurrection, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to his disciples, and this is the part we touched on a lot in our last sermon series, but he said in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave, to, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. And this, he said, is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he gave him that wonderful promise of verse 8. He said, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The long-standing promise spoken of multiple times by the prophets who were speaking the Word of God, and then with an especially heightened emphasis and urgency from Jesus, now all of a sudden in Acts chapter number 2, it's here, it's happening. And it's a monumental thing in terms of God's unfolding plan. It's part of that plan coming together. The question, though, that I want us to focus on this morning is the one at the end of verse number 12. It's exactly the right question. They asked, my translation said, what could this be? Another translation I happen to like better. It reads this way. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this passage mean to the congregation of Trinity Faith Church at this season of doing life together? The people who heard all of this commotion, they were undoubtedly thinking when they witnessed what was taking place, all this sound, all you guys speaking in foreign languages, what's it mean? But we know what happened. It was the Holy Spirit coming. And Luke, Luke tells us that he and uh, Luke tells us and has prepared us for that, but nonetheless, it's helpful for us to ask the same question now some 2,000 years later. What does it still mean? What does it still mean for the people of God in 2018? We're going to get a full and really wonderful explanation of what it means a little bit later on in chapter 2. Luke starts giving it to us with verse number 14 of Peter's sermon. But even before that, there are some things to be said about what this means from what we see right here in these verses, in these first 12 verses, and from how it relates to what we heard Jesus tell his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power. First of all, we've sung about it this morning, but it can't be emphasized too much. We serve a faithful God. How many of you have found that to be true? We serve a faithful God. God is faithful to keep his promises. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. Now let me give you evidence of that. He sent to us in Acts chapter number 2 what he promised. The Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, he promised it some 600 years before to a prophet whose name was Ezekiel. If you want to go to Ezekiel chapter number 36, you'll find in verses 25 and 26 these words. These are the words of the Lord being spoken through the prophet. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. Did you catch that? He said, I will put my spirit within you. Listen to the words of the prophet Joel just a little bit later. Peter's going to talk about this later on in chapter number 2, what specifically Joel had to say. 
But here in, in Joel chapter number 2, verses 28 and 29, Joel, again, speaking the words of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Now think of those words that Jesus spoke reiterating to his disciples this promise from God that had been spoken. He said, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be with you. He will be in you. Now I'm thinking, can you only imagine the expectation and the anticipation of those disciples and those others who followed Jesus, who were gathered there in Jerusalem? They knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They'd heard the words of these prophets uh, in the synagogues that they'd attended over the years on the Sabbath day. They'd heard Jesus. They'd been there when he said these things, and their lives had been radically altered. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. (coughs) Their lives had been radically altered. Isn't that what's supposed to happen when we come to Jesus? I mean, it shouldn't be radical, I mean, the, re- the change should be radical, but it shouldn't be a radical thing that we are changed when we come to Jesus. All things are passed away. All things become new. That's a big change. Here they are. They've experienced radical change in their lives. But then they're devastated by Jesus' death. But then again, they're they're soon full of joy when they realize that he's come back from the dead and is alive again. And then Jesus made this promise telling them to wait in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you a synopsis of of Jesus' ministry real quickly. During Jesus' ministry, the two most important promises that he made to those who followed them, followed him, excuse me, I will build my church. Mark chapter number 8. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the second promise, I will send you the Spirit. That's how he's going to do it. Now, they might not have understood everything about how those two promises were related to each other But they'd heard Jesus say those things so you can imagine their expectation and their anticipation. And now suddenly here in Acts chapter number 2, it's happening. Acts chapter 1, they're waiting on the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, he comes. Another example of God being faithful to his promise. God doing what he said he would do. This is God moving forward with the accomplishment of his plan from before the foundations of the world were laid. It's coming together. Coming of the Holy Spirit foretold by those prophets, foretold by John the Baptist, foretold by Jesus, has now come. And clearly this particular faithfulness of God is not some kind of unique incident. It's not some isolated thing. 
Because God is faithful in everything. This is just another example. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the characteristic of God about which he speaks more than any other characteristic throughout the word, you know what it is? His faithfulness. It's repeated over and over and over. He wants us to know that about him so that we'll trust him. The best way to build trust is to make promises and then keep them. If I tell Brenda upon leaving the house in the morning that I'll be coming home for lunch at 12, when I show up at that time, that builds just a little bit more trust into her heart that I'm going to do what I say, right? Now, the other side of that coin is this. If I tell Brenda that I'm coming home for lunch at 12, and then day after day after day I don't show up until 1.30, And worse, that, worse than that, when I show up at 1.30 day after day, after having told her I'd be there for 12, then I act as if nothing happened or nothing's wrong. What happens to her ability to trust what I have told her I would do? You see what I'm getting at? Now, that's just a small promise, but it's still a promise. Almost 42 and a half years ago, I made some bigger promises to Brenda. I stood in front of a minister and a whole bunch of witnesses, and I made some promises before God to Brenda that were among the most important words I'm going to ever speak. I told her that I would be faithful to her and not leave her until death parted us. That was a big one. You build trust by making promises and then keeping them. That's what God's doing. And he does it throughout Scripture. All, all through his dealings with his people, God makes some very specific, concrete promises, keeping them, and in so doing, showing himself to be faithful and trustworthy. So as he continues to unfold this plan throughout history, we can still trust him that he's going to do what he said he would do. That's who he is. He has said, for example, that he's going to gather those people whom he has redeemed for himself. Do you trust that God's going to faithfully do that? He has said that he will keep those that he's redeemed safely all the way through to the end. Do you trust that he's going to faithfully do that? He has said at some point that he's going to gather his people and he's going to present them before his Father in heaven on that day and they will be looked at by God as blameless based on his righteousness that he's given to them. Do you trust that God's going to do that? He has said that he will bring all his redeemed, all who are in Christ, to heaven where they're going to experience indescribable joy forever and ever. Do you trust that he's going to do that? The first of the things that's happening here in Acts chapter number 2 certainly means that God is a faithful God. He does what he says he will do. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. He accomplishes all that he says he will do. And in that, every follower of Jesus should find incredible rest and peace and joy. Are you thankful this morning that we don't have to worry about God following through on what he's promised? What an amazing God we serve. 
But that brings me to my second point, and it's the one that I primarily want us to dwell on this morning. The second thing that we see here in the beginning of Acts chapter number 2 is that God desires that all people hear the good news about Jesus. That all people receive salvation through Jesus. To state it much more simply and succinctly, the good news is for everyone. It's for everyone. How many of you think everybody could use a little bit of good news? We have the best news. We have the best news. God has a plan. And he's going to bring it together. Probably the most apparent, the most striking thing that's communicated by what happens here in Acts chapter number 2. When the Holy Spirit comes upon these believers, we find in verse number 1 that they are all together together in one place. Now, we don't know exactly where or what this place is, but apparently it's large enough to contain the 120 or so believers that Luke tells us about. It's the day of Pentecost. It gets its name, as we discussed a couple sermon series ago, from, from the fact that it was 50 days after the Passover, the day on which Jesus was crucified. And there's a very important symbolic reason why Jesus' death happened at Passover. You might well imagine God orchestrated that too, part of his plan. Just like the lamb that each and every Passover feast celebration, whatever you want to call it, just as every lamb was sacrificed on that day, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed for the protection, for the rescue, and the salvation of God's people. And then after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. He interacted with his disciples for 40 days. 40 days. And then he ascends back to heaven But as he said to his disciples, wait in the city of Jerusalem. You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, they didn't know, excuse me, they didn't know how many days it was going to be. But God did. God knew that it was going to be 10 days. Why? Because the day of Pentecost was going to be a very symbolic thing for what God was going to do on that particular day. Pentecost, again, 50 days after Passover, was also called the day of first fruits because it was a day when the first fruits of the barley harvest were gathered and they were presented to God as an offering. They would gather some of the the very early barley that was maturing and, and they would bake these little loaves and they could present them to God. So you can see how symbolic it would be, the first fruits of the harvest, the beginnings of a great, what I would like to call, in-gathering of God's people. We talked a couple of messages ago about Pentecost being one of three pilgrimage feasts or festivals, and what that simply means is those were times when, when Jews from all over the world would, would do their best to come to the city of Jerusalem for the festivals. Many people were there from different places, some from very far places. Uh, They would gather in Jerusalem. Uh, Estimates have said that the population of the city of Jerusalem at that particular time was around 50,000 people. But when the feast would take place, and when the feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost would take place, 
It was not uncommon to have more than 200,000 people gathered into the city. People have come from afar off. The city's full. And Luke tells us that on that day, this symbolic day, the day of first fruits, this highly strategic day when all these people are gathered in the city of Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes. Just as God has promised that it would, just as Jesus had promised to his followers, the Holy Spirit comes. And here's how it's described. It's described as a great sound, roaring, like a mighty rushing wind. Luke doesn't say the wind started blowing everything around. That's not what he said. He said there was a sound like a mush, right, mushing, a rushing mighty wind. He's trying to communicate that what is getting ready to happen here is something powerful. And then he goes on to describe there's a, the, the appearance of fire. This fire appears to the followers of Jesus who are there. And, and fire uh, throughout Scripture has always represented the presence of God. You remember back in, in, in the Old Testament when Moses was banished out on the backside of the wilderness. And he, he comes to this bush and this bush is on fire but it's not consumed. And as Moses stood there watching that bush burn without getting burnt... God's presence speaks to Moses out of that burning bush. You remember how when the Israelites were on their uh, journey toward the promised land, they were led by a pillar of fire during the daytime. That was God showing, I'm with you, I'm leading you, this is my presence with you. Now I believe in this case, that the fire appeared over each one of those followers of Jesus to clearly communicate that the Holy Spirit was coming into each and every one of them. This wasn't just the Holy Spirit kind of coming into the room. Each one was baptized, filled with, come upon by the Holy Spirit of God, and they were never going to be the same again. This was a monumental occurrence. They're never going to be the same. Luke tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus had told them was going to happen back in verse 5 of chapter number 1. They were going to be baptized. It's what he said in verse 8 of chapter number 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. They were filled. Notice verse number 4. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the, ability, as the Holy Spirit gave them ability for speech. It's been called other tongues. It's actually other languages. Not just some random, nonsensical sounds being made. It's languages. And Luke tells us that they were foreign languages. Now that sound, those foreign languages being spoken, attracted people who were in that area. And all of that excitement of what's happening, people are being attracted to. 
verse number 5 says, There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. So here's the picture. This crowd is drawn to this place. Probably at the same time the followers of Jesus are making their way out into the street from the upper room. So it must have been some rather large open area. It could be that this house was perhaps very close to the temple. And, and, and so it could be that they moved into the outer courts of what was the temple courtyard. We don't know exactly, but we do know there's a crowd gathering. And they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? You see, apparently some in that crowd recognized that some of these guys were Jesus' disciples. They knew they were from Galilee, and this could have been very well their way of saying in a very mocking way, uh, these are Galileans. They're kind of the, the country bumpkins of Israel, you know. So how are they speaking in these languages that they've not learned? Where did they learn these things? These were unsophisticated, uneducated people. And they said, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And friends, there's no mistaking what's happening here. Three times, Luke makes it very clear that these are foreign languages. He says it in verse 4. He says it in verse 6. He says it in verse 8. And actually, he's going to say it again in verse number 11. I mean, it would be like me standing up here this morning and starting to suddenly speak Mandarin Chinese, which I know none of. And a visitor comes through those doors back there. And here's me preach in Mandarin Chinese the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? It's definite, discernible language. Verses 9 through 11, there are named 15 different locations, different places, different languages of people who are there. Now, we don't know if every one of these 15 places that's named represents a different language, but clearly the point is that there are many different languages being represented in the crowd that had gathered around these who came out of the upper room. You might have noticed back in verse number 5 that Luke had specified that these were devout Jews, but he also says this in verse number 11. In addition to the Jews who've returned to Jerusalem for the feast, there are also proselytes. Now that's an interesting word, but here's what it means. Proselytes are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. As a result of the influence of those Jews who'd been dispersed throughout the world, they've come to believe in the Jewish system. Because they've lived in those places and they've, they've lived in those places for years, these Jews and proselytes would have all been speaking these languages and now they hear all of this that's being spoken in those languages communicating something very significant to them. And my point is 
that God intends for his message of good news to go to all people. The good news is for everyone. Now, here's the important thing. What was it that the disciples were saying in those spiritually enabled foreign languages? Were they commenting on the weather? Were they talking about the latest juicy good news coming out of the city of Jerusalem? Verse 11 and 10 and 11 says that they heard them speaking in their own languages the magnificent acts of God. Now that brings us to another question. What were those magnificent acts of God that they were speaking about? I mean, we can think of plenty of them. The first thing that might come to our mind might be the the mighty acts of God that we read in the Old Testament, like parting the Red Sea. Or, Or God providing manna from heaven for the people of Israel that were journeying to the promised land. Could have been those things, but I don't think so. They're not the most likely mighty acts of God that they're speaking of. Why? Because there are things right here that point us in a different direction. They're speaking of something far more immediate, something far more relevant to that particular crowd that was gathered there on that day. Look at verse number 22 of chapter 2. Peter stands up and he says to them, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Don't kid yourself, friends. Among these 200,000 people gathered in that city, they had heard what had occurred in the last few weeks. They had heard about Jesus over the last three and a half years. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what had happened to Jesus. But Peter talks about the mighty works of God. All of the miracles, all of the signs, all of the wonders that Jesus had performed, he did all of those things to point to them who he was. And then we read the words of John chapter number 20. Now, the Gospel of John is a great gospel written, to, written by the disciple whom Jesus loved the most. And John, throughout his gospel, talks to us about all of the miracles, all the miraculous things that Jesus had done. And then he comes to chapter number 20, and he says in verse number 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But this, catch this. He said, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Therefore, all these mighty works that Jesus had done, that John records, Peter's now referring to him in Acts chapter two, number 2, they testify to who Jesus was, who Jesus is 
is. If you look at verse number 32, after having talked about Jesus for a little bit, Peter says this to the crowd, God has resurrected this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. And this particular mighty work of God, raising Jesus from the dead, it's something they're not going to be able to stop talking about. It's going to stick with them. And Jesus, Jesus being raised from the dead authorized the mighty work that God had done through putting Jesus to death. The great substitutionary work in which Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of the world that were laid upon him and in exchange gave us who were the sinners his perfect righteousness. He gave it to us freely. He exchanged our sin for his righteousness. Can you grasp that? I don't care how you look at it. That's a good trade. He gave us his righteousness, providing complete forgiveness, complete reconciliation to God so that we may have the gift of life, eternal life. Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those are the mighty works that they were speaking of. What God had done through Jesus. And that's what these disciples are talking about in these various languages all of it's being spoken in Arabic and Coptic and Latin and a dozen other languages so that all of the people gathered in Jerusalem can hear about it in their own native tongue. It's amazing. Everybody can know that Jesus died for them, rose again to give them life. And the Holy Spirit came and put that specific message into all these different languages. One message... The news of forgiveness, the news of freedom, the news of life in Christ in many languages. Now, okay, you may not have realized this until now, but what I've just shared with you is the vision for Trinity Faith Church, that we will become a church that reaches out to people who don't know Christ so that we will become a church for all people, no matter what side of the tracks they live on, no matter what language they speak, we need to become the church that welcomes them with the good news of Jesus. That's what we're here for. That's all that we're here for. So what does it mean if you trace the plan and the purpose of God from the beginning? You'll see it coming. I'm going to take you real quickly. If you go back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter number 11, the people of the earth at that time gathered together to build this great tower. It was called the Tower of Babel. You can read the story on your own, but they built it for their own name. They, they, they built it for their own security. They wanted to become independent from God. And so they were going to build a tower that they could climb to get to heaven in their own strength. And then as an act of judgment upon them, and as a kind of restraint on their rebellion against God, what does God do? He disperses them. 
into different language groups, a multitude of different places around the earth. And that was the origin of what we now think of as the nations of the world. But immediately after Genesis 11, what comes next? Well, if you answer Genesis 12, you're right, but that's not what I mean. In Genesis 12, we find a story about a man named Abraham who found favor with God. God calls Abraham, and he tells him that he's going to make of him a nation through which, catch this, all the nations of the world, all of those nations that God had just scattered back in Genesis 11, he's going to make of him a nation that will be blessed and brought back into relationship with him. People from every tribe and nation and language will one day be brought back to God. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God uses the nation of Israel in a variety of ways. But the main thing is that through that little nation, he brought a Savior whose name is Jesus, who brings with him the possibility of life, Through his name, there is no name under heaven by which man can be saved. But at the name of Jesus. And when Jesus comes through that nation of Israel, we begin to see it. Jesus told his disciples, listen, guys, I want you to go into all the world. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. Now put yourself in the feet, in the shoes or the sandals of the disciples for a moment. Jesus has told you, okay guys, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And they're thinking, how can we do that? We don't know the languages. How, how are we going to effectively communicate the gospel to people who don't speak our language? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and enables them to miraculously speak to all sorts of people from all different places the good news about Jesus in their own language. God is sending a very clear message All those nations that were represented in the city of Jerusalem on that day heard the good news of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. And that, friends, was just the first fruits of the harvest. Let me quickly tell you about the rest of the harvest. It's shown to us in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7, verses 9 through 10. There, John the Revelator sees in a vision... People from every tribe and tongue standing before the throne of the Lamb with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then when you get to the end of the revelation, you know what you see? That heaven is populated with people from every nation tribe, and tongue. Don't you just love it when a good plan comes together? How did it come to pass? 
through the coming of the Holy Spirit, making the good news available to everyone, making it possible for all people to come to salvation through Jesus Christ. In closing this morning, I want to add just a little something more personal to us here today. Luke really majors on the effect of all this that happened on this crowd. He said in verse 6, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused. Verse 7, he says they were astounded and amazed. Verse number 12 says they were all astounded and perplexed. He's really majoring on how the crowd is reacting to what's happened. But imagine the effect of this on on these disciples. All of a sudden it dawns on them. We're not doing this on our own. We're not. This is happening to them and through them by way of a miracle. The Holy Spirit has enabled them to do things that they would never have hoped to have done in their wildest imaginations. What effect would this have on them? Well, I think the most apparent effect is this, and it's the one I want to close with. Their eyes were opened to all the people around them in that city. What does that mean? People from all different backgrounds, people with real spiritual needs, with real spiritual destinies. All of a sudden, they started seeing all those people in the same way that God sees all those people. Getting them to look outwardly rather than inwardly. Paying attention to people that were around them. That's what God would have us be doing. It's important. I want us to become a church that reaches out to all kinds of lost people. People with all kinds of backgrounds because... The gospel is for everyone. Can you only imagine seeing a person who might come through our doors on a Sunday morning, new to coming to church, feeling uncomfortable because they're around church people, but yet they know what their spiritual need is, and they find people who reach out to them just like God wants to reach out to them. Can you only imagine that person in your office or at your school? A person with very real spiritual needs and a very real spiritual destiny seeing you. And in seeing you, you share the good news of Jesus with them. And their spiritual destiny is determined as a result of you seeing them as God sees them. That's what God's doing here in Acts 2. He's helping His people. He's helping His disciples have eyes to see. And I believe that's what God's seeking to do in our hearts. Worship team, would you come, please? The end of this chapter 2 is, is remarkable. Verse number 41 says, those who accepted the message, and I'll read in there, the message of the good news, were baptized. And that day, 
about 3,000 people were added to the church. Who knows how God wants to use us? Without question, though, He wants us to see and have hearts to reach out to people. Can you only imagine what it would be like to see 3,000 people added to the church in one day in liberal Kansas? Can you only imagine what it would be like to see Trinity Faith Church become a church of 300 people attending Sunday after Sunday? Can you imagine seeing 30 people coming to Jesus and becoming faithful members of our congregation? Friends, the numbers aren't important. Reaching people with the good news is the message. Can you imagine seeing people being added daily to the kingdom of God? Not just on Sunday, but on Monday through Saturday as each of us faithfully see people as God sees them. Souls who are lost. Souls that and without the good news of Jesus radically affecting their lives are going to spend eternity in hell. Can you imagine seeing those people added to the kingdom? Lord Jesus, what does it mean? It means that the same Holy Spirit that descended on those 120 in that upper room on the day of Pentecost is just as available, just as effective just as empowering today as it was on the day when he first came. And even more importantly, he's available to each and every one of us to do things through us for the kingdom of God that we could have never imagined ourselves doing. What a plan. What a bringing to pass of the plan. And God, the plan is not finished yet. Because we're still here. And there are still lost people all around us. So, Jesus, this morning, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit pierce our hearts. Fill us to overflowing with the Spirit of God, enabling us to see people as you see them, Jesus. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Rod, I stand in agreement with you this morning. God wants to save somebody in this church this morning. And all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And you'll be saved. 
every head bowed, every eye closed, you're here this morning, say, today's the day, Pastor. Today's the day. I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. Just raise your hand real quick. We're not going to fool around with it. I see that hand. Thank you. Another. Another. Lord Jesus, you've said that if we confess with our mouth that you are Lord, we shall be saved. Believe in our hearts that God raised you from the dead, we'll be saved. For the rest of us, Lord, the vast, vast majority of the people sitting in this room at this moment have made that profession of faith some many years ago. But you still have them here. And you have them here to fulfill an unfinished part of your plan. And God, in order for them, for us to do that, we need the empowerment and the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit to literally flood our lives. Baptize us this morning. Baptize her. Fill us with your Spirit. God, enable us to do things that we could never have imagined ourselves doing. Reaching people that we never could have imagined would be reached with the good news of Jesus. Lord, change us from what we have been. We don't want to be just a church that exists, that comes together and, and fellowships together and enjoys the company of one another and does that week after week. God, we want to make an impact for your kingdom. And in order to do that, we need you, Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit. Say, Pastor, I want that empowerment this morning. Just raise your hand to Jesus. I'm not even going to look around. Just raise your hand to Jesus. You want that empowerment to reach your world with the good news of Jesus. Jesus sees every hand. The Holy Spirit of God wants to fill you, wants to refresh you, wants to pick you up and take you to new heights that you've never imagined before. And He'll do that if you ask Him. He'll do it.